0: This is Shelter in Place, a podcast about reimagining life through creativity and community. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. This month, we're celebrating two years of Shelter in Place, the podcast that has gotten us through the pandemic and that we hope has made the hard days feel a little bit brighter for you. We kicked off this month with instructions on how to fix the world from my son Gabriel, who has in many ways grown up with Shelter-in-Place. His birthday fell on the first day of this podcast and the pandemic. Then we featured the Pulitzer Prize-winning author Anthony Doerr, who was my very first creative writing teacher 22 years ago and has been incredibly supportive of both me and of Shelter-in-Place. We spent the two weeks after that doing a retrospective through our first two seasons, which took us through pandemic breakdown and a pandemic odyssey, where we journeyed across the country and back in search of home. Today, we're closing out the month with a big announcement, one that's had us feeling lighter and more hopeful than we have in a while. Our announcement is this. Just as we've been reimagining life through creativity and community these past two years, we're now reimagining shelter-in-place itself. For two years and 200 episodes, we've been doing our best to bring some joy and hope into your lives. We've talked about that in so many different ways. Finding daily sanity in a world that feels increasingly insane. Coming together in a world that pulls us apart. Reimagining life through creativity and community. Escaping not out of life, but into it. But as we came into 2022, we felt a pull towards something bigger. A change that would allow us to find the rest that we realized we needed in our Season 3 episode, Letting the Light In. I needed a way to give myself enough time and space to know when to be productive and when to slow down. Which I talked about in our Season 3 episodes, Stuck on the Staircase and Productivity Unhacked. We came into this year already tired, and Omicron January didn't help. After two years of constant adaptation, of working too many nights and weekends, of forgetting how to get a good night's sleep, I was starting to lose a little bit of the joy of this work. I've asked my husband Nate often these past two years if he wants us to quit this work and just go back to being normal people with regular jobs. Sometimes that option looks very appealing weekends off, knowing we'll get paid, having benefits, maybe even getting to take a vacation once in a while. Nate's been doing this work with me since partway through season one, and he's tired too. But each time I asked that, Nate's responded without hesitation. He says he used to wonder all the time if he was wasting his life away in advertising. He doesn't wonder that anymore. And within seconds of asking the question, I'm nodding along with him because I feel that too, how the relationships we've gotten to build with our Kasama Collective trainees and our Kasama Lab students and people in this industry are some of the most life-giving connections we've ever been a part of. To borrow a phrase from our friend Scott Gullick and the season one episode, Type 2 Fun, it's not easy, but it's good. Still, we've known for a while now that we needed a change, one that would give us permission to step off the treadmill and take a much needed break Our kids are about as proud of this work as we are, but they need us to take a break too, to slow down and be present with them while they're still young enough to want us there. So for many months now, in between the weekly episodes, in the margins of creating and teaching Kasama Labs, while we've been forming a Kasama Collective Board of Directors and applying to become a nonprofit, squeezed in around grant applications and pitches to networks and potential sponsors, and the afterthought of speaking at conferences. Always, we were thinking about what was next. A big part of that conversation has been our name. While our kids have no baggage with the term shelter in place, they think we came up with that cool name for our podcast. For the rest of the world, it's an increasingly loaded term. Shelter in place is inextricably tied to the pandemic, to a time embedded with loss and separation and death. We knew early on that the podcast was bigger than the pandemic, that anyone who listened would quickly realize that too. But we also knew that there were people who would never listen, because just seeing our name would anchor them to a time in history that most of us are ready to move on from. We came close to changing our name more than once, but each time there were reasons to hold off. A name change had the potential to be confusing, We also knew that while we would very much like to be a post-pandemic world for those who are immunocompromised or who've lost loved ones during this time, moving beyond the pandemic isn't yet an option. And besides, if we were going to change our name, we needed to be absolutely certain that what we were changing it to felt right. We had a long-running list of names that we liked, but we could never agree on one that felt quite right. And then, on the morning of our two-year anniversary, The name came to me like a gift, riding on the waves of a poem that I'd never seen before. I told Nate, bracing myself for an objection, but instead he looked at me and nodded. It's perfect. In just six weeks, Shelter in Place will reach 200 episodes. It finally feels like the perfect time to close this chapter and begin a new one. One that we'll share with you in our season three finale in May. But first, we'd love to hear from you about what Shelter-in-Place has meant to you these past two years. Tell us your stories of where you were when you heard an episode that you connected with. Share with us your favorite episodes. We're inviting all of our listeners to submit what Shelter-in-Place has meant to you through a voice memo. We'll include as many of those voice memos as we can in our finale episode, where we'll unveil the name of the show that will carry the spirit of shelter in place, but with a future that's even more joyful and sustainable. If you look in the show notes for today, you'll see a link where you can submit your voice memo. We can't wait to hear your stories and to share with you why we're feeling so hopeful about this next project. In the meantime, we're closing this month by looking ahead at the next one. April is National Donate Life Month. And so today we're sharing with you an episode from the podcast Two Lives. Back in January, we featured my conversation with Two Lives creator, Laurel Morales, in an episode called Why We Need Two Lives to Live One. The episode of Two Lives that we're sharing today is about a woman whose life is transformed when she learns that she needs a kidney transplant. According to the Department of Health and Human Services, 13 people die every day in the U.S., waiting for a kidney transplant. I heard this episode the first time, the same week that my uncle received a kidney transplant from my cousin. In those hours when we were all waiting to see what would happen, this episode brought me inside that experience and also gave me hope. Here's that episode of Two Lives Now.
1: Monica Brown grew up Catholic, but had deep Jewish roots. Monica's great-grandparents died in the Holocaust, but her grandfather escaped by boat to Peru, becoming part of the Jewish diaspora there. Monica's Peruvian grandmother was Catholic, so though her father was Jewish, Monica's mom attended Catholic school.
2: She was haunted by nuns who would pinch her and tell her that her father had horns and that she would go to hell if she wasn't baptized. So one time when her mother and father were out of town, she borrowed a cousin's communion dress and got baptized so she would be saved.
1: Monica's parents didn't want their children to have that conflict. So they raised Monica and her siblings Catholic with a Virgin Mary in every room of the house. As a child, Monica was very imaginative and impressionable. So when the nuns that taught me
2: told me that we are born with original sin, I took that very seriously. It was in some ways the basis of my belief that I needed to be good, but that maybe I wasn't. And that was certainly borne out in the amount of trouble I got in at my Catholic school.
1: As a first grader, she got in trouble for splashing through puddles and extorting popsicle money from a classmate. She had such a deep sense of guilt, but at confession, she was too ashamed to share her sins with the priest. So at night, she would pray. I would pray, I would pray.
2: I thought in my young mind that if only I could talk to the devil, the fallen angel, that loomed large in my imagination from school teachings, that I could convince him to be good, to come back to heaven. And I remember just making the sign of the cross again and again before I went to sleep so that I wouldn't have nightmares and so that I would have prayed right.
1: She was preoccupied with ideas of good and bad sin, and suffering.
2: And so often I never felt good or worthy enough. I wanted to understand what it meant to be a good person and not feel like a bad person. On the one hand, I grew up feeling like I had to earn love by being good. On the other hand, my upbringing made me really tough. And I did
1: not and still do not like to feel vulnerable or weak. So when it came time to ask for help, The very idea felt ridiculous to Monica. This is a story about how we resist help, even when the stakes are life or death. This is Two Lives. I'm Laurel Morales. Monica's mother, Isabel, and her wild and creative spirit had a profound influence on her. She embraced her Peruvian culture, as well as her parents' religions. Around her neck, she wore a cross, a Star of David, and Tumi, representing her mother's indigenous Peruvian heritage. From their home in Northern California, they would travel to Peru for months at a time. Isabel loved to paint large, abstract, figurative pieces that reminded her of home.
2: So I grew up surrounded by the colors of her canvases and images, shapes. So they were paintings that invited you in to explore, but sometimes disturbed, that delighted me. They're just part of my imaginative landscape as well in my dreams.
1: Monica remembers her mother as joyful, vibrant, and fun. Isabel loved to dance and perform. When Monica's mother was pregnant with her, they discovered she had kidney disease. 11 years later, when she was pregnant with Monica's younger brother, Isabel was hospitalized for high blood pressure due to complications from her disease. Monica's grandmother died of that same disease when she was only 41, just a couple of years before dialysis was invented. It's called autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, or ADPKD. It causes fluid-filled cysts to grow in your kidneys, ADPKD is a progressive disease. It typically doesn't affect a person until they're older. Then it gets worse with time.
2: It was terrifying to have a mother who was sick and so young and vibrant to have an awareness of mortality and danger.
1: Isabel would share stories of her own mother. My grandmother Esther Valdivia
2: Sobenitas died when my mother was, I think, 11 years old, and she would tell me stories of her mother being so sick that all of her memories were of laying in bed with my mother. And so, of course, when my energized mother started to spend more and more time on the couch and be more and more tired, I was very worried.
1: Isabel's kidney disease progressed rapidly in her late 30s, and soon she started going to dialysis, which did for her what her kidneys could no longer do, essentially cleaned her blood. For several years, her mom was on a list for a kidney transplant. Meanwhile, she went to dialysis three times a week.
2: And dialysis saves people's lives, but for her, it was a really difficult thing because it was very hard for her to be tied to a machine. She had a very free spirit and mind, and so it took up a lot of space to go through that. And yet, it was a life-giving machine, and I know she and I am very grateful for it. But I knew early on that this was something she endured so she could live. While she would be exhausted from dialysis, and it would take time to recover, and then she'd have more energy the following day, and then go through the cycle all over again.
1: Monica went to college at the University of California, Santa Barbara, a couple of hours from her family. When she came home, she'd sit with her mother while she was on dialysis and try to distract her.
2: She always was desperate to have company. It made the hours go faster when she was tied to
1: the machine. When Monica graduated from college, she got a job reporting for a newspaper in Guadalajara. It was then that her mom finally received the news she was going to have a kidney transplant.
2: And she called me, and it was a challenge to call. I think she called me at work at the newspaper because I didn't have a phone where I was staying. And she said, Monica, I am... I'm so nervous. I'm scared. I'm going to do this. Will you be there when I wake up? And I said, I will. I promise. I love you. It's going to be okay.
1: So Monica flew home to be with her for the surgery. She knew the process could be a long one, as sometimes the body rejects the new kidney at first.
2: Once my mom got her kidney transplant, when she got over her rejection, she lived wild and she lived boldly. She went back to school. She painted even more. She ended up getting a BFA and an MFA in painting. She traveled very often back to Peru.
1: Monica went back to school to get her Ph.D. in English at Ohio State University. That's where she met Jeff Berglund. They met at a picnic. Monica brought the salsa.
3: She had very red eyes. She had rubbed her eyes and the area around it uh, with her serrano, pepper-filled hands. I was attracted to her sense of humor about it. I thought she was beautiful. I also thought she was interesting and creative, and she was someone I wanted to get to know.
1: And so they did get to know each other and fell in love. As she was imagining a future with Jeff, Monica knew she should get tested for ADPKD. Her grandmother had it. Her mother had it. The suspicion that she had it had lurked in Monica's mind since she was a child. She went to her doctor and detected an ultrasound of her kidneys, and right away, Monica could see the cyst.
2: Even on an ultrasound, even an untrained eye could see that there is something wrong. Honestly, I thought I had it. I knew to my bones that I had it. So it felt like a confirmation rather than a revelation this may sound mystical or superstitious but I had always known that I had it and I think that's an inheritance from my mother who was very spiritual very religious in her way and very superstitious
3: and I got a phone call from her after she had met with her doctors you know it was heartbreaking on the one hand I also learned very quickly in meeting with her doctors that they were incredibly hopeful. It was a period in time that the experiences of people who had benefited from transplants was really incredible. And the, the science behind the treatment programs was getting better and better. And so the likelihood of people surviving post-transplant for many, many years uh, was increasing.
1: Knowing it was a progressive disease, Monica and Jeff didn't waste any time. They got married right after graduation.
2: We married when I was 26. So Jeff turned 30, finished his PhD, and married me all in the same week.
1: (laughs) Monica knew she wanted to have a family, so they tried to get pregnant right away.
2: Because of my mother's experience with challenging pregnancies, I knew it would be important to know. So when I went to a nephrologist and I received the diagnosis, the message was to have children early while my kidneys were in good shape. We got married in September, and I believe by January I was pregnant with my first child.
1: (laughs) She had her first daughter when she was 27 and her second when she was 29. Both Monica and Jeff landed tenure-track teaching jobs at Northern Arizona University, so they moved to Flagstaff to start their lives.
2: We were a whirlwind. We were both professors trying to get tenure. We had two little kids. Um, We were writing books and teaching and very involved in our jobs and our community.
1: Monica says she was going full speed ahead, parenting, teaching Latinx literature and African-American literature, and when she wasn't teaching, she was writing children's Latinx books. Her books about Celia Cruz and Pele and a little girl named Marisol from a mixed-race family had become so popular, a production company was even considering making Marisol into a TV show. On top of all of this, Monica was making tenure. So she compartmentalized the ticking time bomb that was her kidney disease— went to doctor's appointments, but really had no time to dwell on it. At the same time she received this amazing news about her promotion, Monica learned her mother's health was declining. Isabel had cancer, a heart condition, and now, after 15 years, her body was rejecting her transplant kidney. But nothing would stop her from celebrating Monica.
2: She came with my Tia Ruthie from Peru, and they yelled and whistled and did all sorts of things when I got my promotion.
1: Within a few months, Monica got a call from her dad in Northern California.
2: And he just said, if you want to see mom, you've got to come now because we lived 12 hours away. And I remember we drove like through a snowstorm and made it. Mm-hmm. I remember how remarkable it was. She had her beautiful hands unchanged, even though the rest of her was hooked up to various life support machines in the ICU. But her beautiful painted red fingernails and hands, I could stroke and tell her that I loved her, that it was okay for her to let go and stop fighting.
1: Monica's mom died at 63. It was around this time that Monica decided to convert to Judaism for a few different reasons.
2: In my experience of Judaism and explorations of reform and reconstructionist Judaism, there's no emphasis on heaven or hell but rather the world we are in. And it held such great appeal to me because of the emphasis on tikkun olam, the idea of healing the world. And I wanted to give my children community, especially with this idea that I may not be there for them.
1: Not long after her mother's death, Monica, now in her 40s, started to feel more and more fatigued. If she could squeeze in a nap, she wouldn't really feel energized afterwards.
2: I didn't have a great awareness of what was happening in my body. I didn't get enough sleep. I had a lot of stress. I took on too much. And my body started to register the progression of my ADPKD. And my kidney function was lessening and lessening and lessening.
1: One night. She was in such severe pain, she had Jeff drive her to the emergency room. The doctor on call told her one of her cysts probably ruptured, but Monica knew enough about the disease to disagree. She asked for a kidney consult, but they sent her home. She called her internist, who also downplayed her pain, and suggested she waited out.
2: If 10 is passing out, I am a nine. <laughs> it is agonizing, and again, I was told that it'll feel worse before it feels better. And I was just, you know, at that point moaning. And I've consulted with two different doctors. And finally, it was later and later, and my sister actually told me, if you don't go to the doctor, you're going to die. If you don't go to a hospital, you're going to die. And that's what she told me. I told my sister I'm not going back to the ER because they told me to go home. And I stupidly was was afraid of feeling shamed, like you don't really need to be here.
1: Some of those critical voices and feelings of unworthiness had crept in. Her sister urged her to get a third opinion. Finally, Monica talked to her nephrologist, and he told her to go to the emergency room. Since she didn't want to go back to her small-town hospital, her husband drove her to the next closest hospital, two and a half hours away. By the time they arrived, she couldn't walk. Her enlarged kidneys made it difficult to see the appendix, but she wound up having a ruptured appendix and could have died. The appendectomy was the first of 12 surgeries Monica would have in three years.
2: I had these very large football-sized kidneys and... They were unwieldy and putting pressure on my internal organs and also on the wound where I had appendicitis. So I developed a hernia right after, in early 2018, they discover a tumor in my neck and my parathyroid. (laughs) And I have a few days of worrying about whether or not I have cancer, waiting for a biopsy,
1: turned out she didn't have cancer. But while all of this was happening, her kidneys were losing function. Her doctor put her on the long wait list for a deceased kidney donation. Monica's brother-in-law, Brent, who had first positively tested as a potential kidney donor, was no longer a match. Monica had to prepare for dialysis, but that turned out to be a challenge.
2: My surgeon attempted to put in an AV fistula, which is when they join an artery in a vein so you can do dialysis. And it failed <laughs> in my wrist. And so then I had a second surgery in an attempt on my upper arm to create a workable AV fistula. Then we found out that it worked, but it was too low in my arm, so they sort of had to open me up from the elbow to the shoulder to lift the whole vein. And then on top of that, there was a little bit of a blockage. So then we had a minor vascular surgery to do an angioplasty. And on top of that, I had been waiting for years now on uh, for a deceased kidney donation. But part of my challenge was that I had antibodies to a lot of people.
1: She thought of her mother when she was terribly sick in the hospital She remembered a late-night conversation about what happens after you die, what she believed, what Monica believed.
2: She said, Monica, and she had this beautiful accent. Monica, when you have been through what I have been through, it is not whether you believe in God. You see the face of God. I only now understand what she meant by that. It was about the nature of God, yes, but also love and life and transcendence and what gets us through pain and lets us survive any number of things because there is a beautiful connection to some something divine or magical or some sort of grace that gets us through or got me through have been some excruciatingly painful moments
0: i'll be right back with more of this story right after this short break do you have a story that you'd like to tell through podcasting but you're not sure where to begin when i started podcasting the thing that intimidated me most was audio editing I did eventually learn how to do it. And I have to admit, when Hindenburg signed on to be a sponsor for Kasama Labs, our audio storytelling course, I thought it was great that our students would have free access to an audio editing software, but I didn't think it would convert me to use it too. But today I'm totally sold. It's an elegant audio editing software made for podcasters and radio with everything you need to make beautifully designed podcast episodes, but no more so it doesn't feel overwhelming or complicated. We're so proud to be able to offer Hindenburg to our Kasama Lab students and our Kasama Collective trainees. Thank you to Hindenburg for helping our students master the art and science of audio storytelling. You can find more of Hindenburg's
1: products at Hindenburg.com. It was November of 2018, two years since she'd been put on the wait list for a deceased kidney. Thirteen people die each day waiting for a kidney transplant, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And it was getting to the point where Monica could be one of those people. She was sick, she still didn't have a working fistula, and she kept developing hernias along her incision sites due to her enlarged cystic kidneys. With so little kidney function, it was hard for her body to heal.
2: And I was hanging on with very impossibly low kidney function, which meant I was slowly being poisoned in my body. At this point, uh, the trio of my husband, my therapist, and one of my very best friends staged a sort of intervention.
1: The three of them pleaded with Monica on the phone, by email, and in person asking her to post on Facebook an appeal to her friends for a living kidney donation.
2: They wanted to put a call out, and I did not. I felt ashamed somehow that it would be a shameful thing to do. I certainly did not feel worthy of asking for such a thing. I still don't. They felt that I was worthy They finally, in a weak moment, um, got me to agree to let them decide what to do and take it out of my hands. And I was so sick that it couldn't stay in my hands. I was kind of just surviving day by day. And then Jeff wrote a letter about me, about my work as a teacher and as a children's author. And I think my friend Annette edited it.
1: I still didn't want them to post it. She resisted because at her core, Monica did not believe she was good enough. She says it felt unspeakably selfish.
3: And I said, what is the worst case scenario? The worst case scenario is you've educated a lot of people about one where you're at and where people like you, hundreds of thousands of people um, who are on the waiting list every day, where they're at. And that's a good thing. If that's the outcome, that's a good thing. The bad outcome would be, on a psychological and an emotional level, that this sets you back. I said, but that's a risk I'm willing to take because I don't think that will be borne out.
2: Jeff and I met with my therapist. I think it was Florence who said, Monica, do you give us permission to act in your best interest and I think I still said no but then she said will you let us take care of you Jeff and I and I said yes Then my husband posted the call in that moment on Facebook.
1: So on May 9th 2018 Jeff posted a letter.
3: Dear friends family and readers of Monica's work it will probably come as a surprise to you that my amazing wife, the writer Monica Brown, has been living with an incurable inherited kidney disease autosomal dominant polycystic. Monica kidney
1: couldn't disease. bring herself to look at the post. She, she felt embarrassed, embarrassed and ashamed. With but within damage, minutes, responses came pouring right. in. Dozens of people offered help and prayers, and a total of 27 got tested to see if they were a match.
2: The response was, Unbelievable. It was probably the, one of the most overwhelming, blessed moments of my life because the response was instantaneous by text, by message, by email to Jeff. Because, of course, I couldn't even, I just did not want to be on Facebook or anything. I just felt very unworthy. And yet, there was like a a storm of love from people that I cared about, from strangers, from people who knew my work. And it was beautiful.
1: They all coordinated appointments to test for compatibility, but unfortunately, none of them, not one, was a match.
2: So I was starting to feel a little hopeless because I was so sick from barely having kidney function. My blood wasn't being clean. I still did not have a working AV fistula, and soon it would be a sort of emergency dialysis situation. What was interesting to me is when I was the most vulnerable and the most literally near death in terms of my body not working and an organ I needed to live failing. I felt so worthy of love and like I could contain it all without qualification. And that was a new experience to me.
1: Monica says she was unprepared for the bounty of love and hope and acceptance she felt from people and what kind of impact that would have on her own sense of goodness.
2: I don't want to think I need to be suffering to be able to receive. I don't like that. So yet, if there's a lesson to be learned about that, it's one that I have to learn every day.
1: Her surgeon told Monica to hang on. She should have a working fistula for dialysis by December 1st. On December 1st, she got a call. But it wasn't about dialysis. It was a new kidney a young person who had agreed to be an organ donor, had died. But because Monica was recovering from yet another emergency hernia surgery, the doctors wanted to examine her to make sure she was strong enough for the major operation.
2: And we drive down to the Mayo Clinic, and I'm still not sure, and I won't know, because I won't know for hours upon hours. And They wanted to see if I was okay enough and strong enough to receive the kidney transplant. So I go
1: down, I put
2: on makeup, and I'm like, I am healthy, I am strong, you know.
1: So they examined Monica and decided she was clear for surgery.
2: And then I got the kidney the morning of December 2nd, which is the morning of the first night of Hanukkah, the festival of miracles. I would have danced into the surgical room if they had let me. So it's not that it was an easy surgery or recovery, but I was fueled by joy and hope. So I was feeling very, very positive.
1: After the surgery, Monica had to go in every day for tests. On the fifth day, she got some bad news from her doctor.
2: And the news was that I was already tacking and rejecting my beautiful kidney that had started working, but my antibodies were already revved up. And the instructions were to check into the hospital. And it was really devastating because my body was rebelling against me, against this beautiful gift, and my first thought was, Oh, what will I tell the donor's family?
1: Her file was reviewed by the complex case committee at Mayo.
2: I went through, I think, seven rounds of plasmapheresis where they remove the blood from your body, separate the blood cells from the plasma and the liquid, and replace it with donor plasma to get rid of those antibodies. I went through seven cycles of that, IVIG, intense steroid treatments and infusions.
1: She had an allergic reaction to the plasma that caused her to break out in welts and her skin to burn and itch. The medicine they used to treat her reaction caused her to hallucinate.
2: And I remember quoting Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Because the end of 100 years of solitude, 100 años de soledad, refers to the oldest, the first of the line being tied to a tree and the last being eaten by ants. And so I said, I'm being devoured by ants. I'm being devoured by ants.
1: By some miracle, she got to keep her kidney. As soon as the kidney was working, she wrote a letter to the donor's family.
2: Dear family and loved ones of my donor. I have thought of you each day since I received the amazing gift of a donated kidney. I am filled with sympathy and sadness for your loss and can only imagine what pain you must be feeling. Your loved one must have been a truly special person as you are for giving the gift of life to so many while grieving your beloved family member. I want you to know what this choice means to me and my family and also to tell you that I intend to honor you all and my donor in the way I live my life. I work closely On the with second
1: anniversary people. of her transplant surgery, Monica received a letter from the family.
2: And I had a really profound experience that night. Very often since my transplant, I will In the quiet moments of the night, put my hand over the incision, my happy scar where the kidney rests, and I felt such a pouring of grief through my body. I felt like through my hand, I (laughs) was touching the hands of my donor's parents, and It was so profound, and I felt a type of grief that I had never felt in my life, and I haven't since.
1: It's been three years since her transplant. Monica is now 52, and she just walked her first 5K. It's still really hard for Monica to surrender to help, but because such a great act of selfless good has been given to her, she's doing more mitzvahs, or good deeds, and she's trying to give back in small and big ways volunteering, teaching, mentoring, and writing. And the more she does, the better she feels about herself. And still, she questions.
2: I just can't help but think about what the world would be like if we treated everyone as though they were dying. I received so much goodness and love that I try to pass that on. Really hard, but if we stop and think about how ephemeral life is, it makes
1: it easier. This is Two Lives. I'm Laurel Morales.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode today from the podcast Two Lives. You can check out more Two Lives episodes at twolives.org. You can help both Two Lives and Shelter-in-Place by leaving a five-star rating and a quick review. And don't forget to send us your voice memos of what Shelter-in-Place has meant to you. If you've appreciated Shelter-in-Place these past two years, and it's made you feel a little less alone, you can help us to continue this work by supporting us for as little as $5 a month. As always, we'll give you a special, personalized shout out at the end of the episode to let you know just how much we appreciate you. The Shelter-in-Place music was created by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions. Additional music and sound effects for this episode come from Storyblocks. Melissa Lent is our project manager. Sarah Edgel is our design director. Nate Davis is our creative director. And as always, I'm your host and executive producer. Until next time, this is Shelter-in-Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis. And now, if you're still listening, here's a little outtake.
3: Clearly, Shelter-in-Place needs a new name. I think that the new name should be no longer Shelter in Place. I think the podcast should be called The COVID Shot. Or not Shelter in Place anymore. Or home pod. Or it could be a new podcast. The podcast could be called I Don't Know. If I were to pick a name for Shelter in Place, it would be The Snuggle Time. This is Eloise, a Davis family friend, and I think that the new name should be Laura and Nate's Shed Podcast. Or Red Panda Delight. Bunny Hot Tub. Red Panda Drinking Coffee Delight. Ninja Go.
1: The Family Friendly Family Friend Friendly Podcast. Plug Ninja. Or Unicorn Cafe.
3: Felice. Or Adventure on Electronic Devices. It isn't like you guys are going to be really talking about ninjas and stuff and blah, blah, blah. It's